Welcome to you all uh, this evening over here in the UK, but I know that we have many people from all over the world joining us. So whichever time zone you're in, uh, welcome to you all too. Special welcome to uh, my three guests who I'll be introducing very soon, inshallah. So my name is uh, Asim Qureshi. I'm the research director of the advocacy organization CAGE. For those of you who are uh, not familiar with CAGE and maybe you found out about this event uh, through social media or through friends, uh, CAGE is an advocacy organization that seeks to campaign against discriminatory, discriminatory state policies and advocate for due process and the rule of law, particularly within the context of the global war on terror, where we've seen an erosion of both rights and liberties. So that's basically what we do. Um, you might be wondering, well, you know, why is this organization putting together a discussion on jihad? So that's part of what we're hoping to, to explain and uh, tackle today. Uh, I want to start and uh, preface the, the conversation that we're going to have by saying that uh, this conversation really comes about um, out of uh, Daryl Lee, who's one of our guests, his book, The Universal Enemy, which focuses very much on the role that foreigners uh, played in um, the conflict in Bosnia, the jihad in Bosnia, whether as humanitarians or even as fighters. Uh, but while that's the, uh, the emphasis of Daryl's book, what we thought is that by drawing in our other guests, Mars and Begum and Barbara Ahmed, what we could do is have a conversation, yes, about people who were there on the ground in Bosnia, but really draw out from there, much wider than that, a conversation more generally about how foreigners end up in these uh, conflict zones, why um, they end up there, uh, what their motivations are, how they behave, um, and also, hopefully by the end uh, for our audience to maybe draw some lessons uh, as to why this is so important. So um, Bosnia and Daryl's book really um, as a hook uh, for, the, for the event, but really the conversation um, that we were hoping for and envisaging is much wider than that. And of course, in, in, encompassed within that is um, uh, many conversations that we hope to have around the global war on terror and the way in which these historical moments have been uh, drawn into uh, our contemporary discourses, how they've been drawn into policymaking and um, the enactment of laws and how people have then been affected. So the history does play a, a very important role within uh, the contemporary politics that we see today. So to more formally introduce um, you know, my, uh, our guest today, uh, first up, uh, Daryl Lee, Dr. Daryl Lee, who um, uh, is with us from Chicago right now. He is a, an assistant professor of anthropology and a lecturer in law at the University of Chicago. Uh, we could have, by the way, had this conversation uh, in Urdu or Arabic because, mashallah, Daryl's Urdu puts mine to shame, which is a great shame on me, but very impressive on his part. Um, but uh, yeah, fortunately, we're doing it in English, so I don't have to get shown up. Uh, we also have with us today um, uh, Marzen Beg, who is a former Guantanamo Bay detainee. He is the outreach director of our organization, CAGE, um, who also spent time uh, in Bosnia and Afghanistan. So has a wealth of experience that he can share with us. Uh, and last but definitely not least, uh, our, my old uh, childhood friend, Barbara Ahmed, who is a former detainee in the U.S., um, but is also a veteran 
of uh, the, the jihad in Bosnia. He's also you know, traveled many places around the world, has a great deal of experience, and so will be helping to provide that lived experience to the discussions that we have. And it's really with Barbara that I want to set the tone with this conversation because in 1995, I used to attend a, uh, a circle uh, as, a, as a, a very young man. Uh, I think I was 12 years old at the time. And this Friday circle was really about teaching young Muslims um, about um, our faith, but also situating our faith within the context of the world that we were living in. And, you know, it's really because of um, people like Barbara, who was like an older brother for those of us who were around that age. I think I was probably the, the youngest person in the room in those days, uh, in, a, in a group uh, full of teenagers, that, you know, we, we encountered um, what was going on in Bosnia, what was going on in different parts of the Muslim world. Like we had never, as, as a young person, I'd never heard of these things. And it was by attending these um, classes that you'd first find out about the, the details, the more granular details about what's, what's actually taking place. But then having connected it to your faith really felt in, in many ways um, like you're connecting to different parts of yourself that you never even knew about. Like at, at 12, I had, no, I had no idea that there were white Muslims en masse in Europe and that they were being killed because of their faith. And so, you know, it's actually many thanks to Barbara from my side for, for opening that world to me in a way that I, I had never um, even thought of it before and for, for taking the risks of traveling to these places at, at a very young age for himself. And so really that's where, you know, I think this conversation begins because, you know, you, you have this situation where there are a group of Muslims in another place. And this story replicates itself in many times in many places in different ways. Where, you know, uh, a, a group of people from a, a completely different country look at that situation and they think to themselves, you know, I, I feel I'm duty bound to help in some way. Um, and whether it's as a, a fighter or a, a humanitarian, you know, but actually it's, it's in that language itself that, that I really want to start this conversation, maybe with you, Barbara, first, right? Because, you know, in some ways, like when you think about the, the injunctions of the Quran about helping the oppressed, you know, when we use terms like fighter or humanitarian, it's almost like we... Um, present these these roles and these modes in a very um secularized form you know a, a form that that somehow separates the role that they have whereas people are going there for a multitude of reasons you know and sometimes those those shift between the humanitarian and the the desire to defend and to help and to um to be involved in armed struggle so you know if i could just start with you maybe if you could give us some some thoughts uh, around you know your own motivations for for going to bosnia for the first time so, um, um, everyone, good evening or good, uh, good night or good morning, depending on where you are, where you are listening from in the world. Um, so my, my first visit to Bosnia was when I was 18 and that was in uh, 1992. And it's important before we, um, before I just talk about my motivations, it's just to set the scene of what the world was like in that place. There's no smartphones, no Google, no YouTubes. We had this thing, some of you may know, uh, I'm not sure even sure if Darold will remember, uh, video cassettes, audio cassettes, 
Um, and um, all the source of news was from newspapers and your news bulletin that comes uh, uh, three times a day or whatever. Um, so I was just 18. I, I just uh, I was about to start university and I saw some um, I saw some news reports. Um, and uh, then I started university and around that time I had my first uh, Christmas holidays and uh, I mean I was 18. At 18 you don't really know what you're doing and in my case I think my case is a little bit unique in that in a lot of people that end up in, in, in prison or detention they have this like you know this like megalomaniac uh, type figure they have this like guy in the background this like mentor this uh, what they call radicalizers or there's some scholar or there's some hate preacher in my case there was nothing like that you know i was just a, you know 18 and i was just running a little um class for for um you know 10 15 16 year olds um so I just saw the news and I thought, okay, I need to go there. I need to do something. I didn't want to be one of those people who just watch something and just turn a blind eye. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I got some phone numbers uh, and I thought, okay, let me go and do some aid work. And before, I, before long, I end up in Croatia um, and I'm lifting uh, rice sacks off a truck and filling them into something else. Um, and meeting refugees, so that was quite had quite an impact for someone like me that just lived an ordinary life, went to school, came home, played football with friends on the weekend, um, lived in London, grew up in London, and now I'm seeing refugees, I'm seeing uh, military vehicles, I'm seeing, uh, um, I'm hearing stories. So a few after a few days in Croatia, I went into Bosnia, um, and it's it's difficult to articulate the impact that that had on me as an 18 year old who's up to this point lived a quite sheltered life seeing um, as we went through we drove through Mostar and half of half of Mostar all the minarets had been destroyed all the mosques had been destroyed and the other half like it was completely unt untouched so I spent a few um, I went there and um, I looked around the country and I saw, um, I met refugees, I heard this, their stories. Um, and at some point, um, at some point after some time when I was there, it was a short visit, but um, I thought that there's no point, after I heard some horrific stories, I thought that there's no point of me, um, you know, what's the point of giving food and water to people to whom this is happening? I have to try and stop it. So I went to the, there was a Bosnian army, a building occupied, it was a school, I think, occupied by the Bosnian army. And I went there and, um, and I said, hey, I want to, you know, defend your people. I want to fight for your people. And, um, and so they sent me to, um, they put me in, got someone, someone put me in a van. And before long, I ended up in a, a place where I'm sure Dara is familiar with, a place called Mehoric. And um, there was a there was a building there, and, and they, these were the international um, uh, brigades. So these were Mujahideen fighters that had actually come fresh from Afghanistan, like six months earlier, because the conquest of uh, uh, Kabul took place in April of '92, and uh, I'm now there in December. So these guys literally had just come a few months before from having defeated the um, the, 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 the the Soviet Union. So I went there and I spent some time there. Um, I went through some basic training. I did already know 
how to use firearms because I used to be in the cadets. That's that's sort of that's what I used to blag my way to the army. I said I'm trained. <laughs> I know how to. I just about could fire uh, shoot a rifle, but uh, I didn't know much. But uh, I think at that point they weren't, you know, they weren't really interested in checking my credential. They just sent me on to to the right people. Um, I spent some time there. Uh, we went to the front line. We saw some combat, um, and after a short visit, then I came back. And then for the next three years until the war ended, I think the right word to use is obsessed. That I was obsessed with, I became obsessed with the war in Bosnia. It's like physically, I was in London at university, but in my lectures and in my tutorials, I'm not actually there. My mind is still in Bosnia. And, and I went and I spoke and, and I'm raising money and I'm telling everyone, everyone I'm, I'm like, you know, sleeping like four or five hours a night sometimes. And I'm traveling around the country to raise money, to meet people, to do anyone that can do anything, you know. And some of the projects, I look back, some of the projects and ideas that we had were just, you know, we, we got this uh, transit van and we wanted this transit van. We wanted to somehow secure it because it's just a, a transit van. And so we thought, okay, well, if we get bulletproof uh, glass, then we can put that inside the panel and then that'll give it some sort of a protection. And uh, we managed to find that out somewhere, then they, they got it. And then we realized that that glass is so heavy that the suspension of the van is not even going to take it because it needs the suspension. And I'm like 18, 19, I'm like trying to figure all these things out. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. But um, yeah, to, I mean, to, to looking back, it was, I'll say that it was the, um, I'll say it's the most purposeful uh years of my life where I actually felt that I was doing something that was making a difference and uh, that short trip of mine that I went to it, it changed my life I mean my life was not the, the same um, after that thank you thank you for sharing that I mean Daryl your your book is focused on this idea of um, universalism and that's the that's what you're trying to draw but effectively what you're what you're talking about is how people build solidarity with one another outside of like um the, the these kind of imposed frames of um nation states right so you know we've all we've all been brought up in a world where nation states are the the, the primary way that we think about identity right but you're you're really in some ways telling a story that's much grander than that, you know, in terms of this idea of universalism. So could you tell us, because I mean, Barbara's story is very familiar to you. I mean, you, you, he's one of the people that uh, I know you interviewed for the book, but you, there were many others as well. So maybe you can give us a, um, an impression of some of those stories that you heard and what ties all these people together. Yeah. Um, uh, alaikum. Um, awesome, Shazana, uh, everyone at CAGE. Thank you so much for organizing this event. Um, I have immense respect for the work that you do, um, and you know, especially under the circumstances that you face. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased to be with you both. Um, Wazam, I don't think we've met in person, but we've been in touch over the years through the Guantanamo litigation, other contexts. I'm really happy to see you. And um, Babur, as, as Awesome mentioned, is someone who I interviewed for the book, and also I was... Um, involved in a small way in his uh, legal case um, in the United States as well. And we can talk a little bit more, more about that in the, you know, in the Q&A if that comes up. Um, in answer to your question, Awesome, I mean, I think you actually, in, in your opening comments, really laid out 
you know, the basic idea of the book, you know, much more beautifully than I could have, right? Just this idea that, you know, you develop a sense of attachment and a sense of obligation to help some people, you know, on the other side of the world who you don't have any sort of natural connection to. And by natural, we mean national, because of course, nationalism is kind of, as you said, the main way that we kind of organize these categories. So what I was trying to do with this book was to look at these kinds of transnational jihad mobilizations. And instead of looking at them as a question of like radicalization or threat, um, to just sort of ask the question of, well, how do people who come from very different places, who speak very different languages, who have very different experiences, actually figure out a way to cooperate and do things together under incredibly different circumstances, incredibly difficult circumstances, right? In this case, namely war, genocidal massacres, ethnic cleansing, and so on. So I spent about 15 years working on this book, interviewed a bunch of folks in different places who had fought in Bosnia or who had been engaged in other kinds of... Um, sort of solidarity activity. And um, <clears throat> one thing that I would say that I think might uh, sort of complement the experiences um, of people like Bob and Muazzam is that uh, a lot of the people who fought in Bosnia, who joined the jihad were, um, were people of sort of Arab origin from Middle Eastern countries. And a very, very significant portion of them, I might even say the majority, were, um, were folks for whom this was their first jihad. And many of them were already migrants living in Europe, especially Italy. So um, a lot of these guys were, you know, they had left um, places like Morocco, Egypt, Tunisia. Um, there was a whole series of kind of economic shocks in the 1980s, right? That kind of drove people to Europe in search of work. Um, so you had a lot of working class folks doing construction, doing agricultural labor, and who were, especially in Italy and Austria, you know, meeting these refugees, you know, streaming out of Bosnia and hearing their stories and becoming involved. And similar to, to Babur's story, um, the motivations, like the specific way that people wanted to help was much more of a fluid question and kind of a secondary question, right? Like the first thing is just this idea of obligation and trying to help folks out. But then once people got there, you know, some people did the aid work thing, some people picked up a gun, some people started with one and then did the other or moved in the other direction. And the book really tries to capture the, the diversity of those experiences um, and to really just understand how people were trying to make sense of and to realize um, a, a, a certain duty and obligation, um, but in a really specific, you know, kind of um, historical uh, context. Thank you. Um, I mean, that, that I think brings me neatly to, to Moazim. As Moazim, you, you were very familiar with, um, you know, the kind of the movement of people between the UK and Bosnia. Um, you know, I think there were a number of convoys that, um, that went there and we'll come to kind of the tradition of convoying <laughs> later I think has resonance um, to a great deal with much of what's going on now and we'll talk about the differences as well but you know can you give us like a sense of you know Barbara's given us a very individual account okay and you of course you have your own experiences as well which would be good to hear about but also of you know the the kinds of people that, that were traveling, the regularity with which they were traveling, the kind of um, experiences that they had. Yeah, Bismillah uh, alaikum to everybody, inshallah, and jazakum khair to having me. Um, 
Yeah, unlike Barbara, I wasn't, a, 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 you know, an 18-year-old. I was a bit old. I was in my mid-20s. And one of the things that I found myself um, being connected to directly, of course, I feel, I mean, I, I knew I met Barbara very briefly during that period, but that there was this national movement, nationalized movement that had been affected by watching those videos, for example, the massacres in Bosnia and Croatia. It was a very, inf- very famous video in which you see all of these massacres that took place, women who'd had their bellies ripped open um, to, for, because soldiers wanted to check if it's a boy or a girl as part of a bet, and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it did greatly affect us. And meeting refugees over here was the first time I met, I had a, a real physical connection. Um, meeting one person, I remember sat with him, his name was Samir, he was a, gra- a graduate of Sarajevo University. As he's talking to me, he, he casually takes off one leg. And when he continues to talk, he takes off the other leg. So he's a double amputee. And it happened to him while he was in a neighbor's area um, that had been mined just after the war began. So it was this sense of intense nationalism, this, uh, you know, I think nationalism had been mentioned already. And that's a place where we saw this kind of nationalism uh, manifest itself in a hatred of Islam, the like of which we didn't even understand existed. And when we saw through the pages of CFAX, which was a news thing that used to come on uh, on the BBC uh, as to what's happening in Bosnia, um, yeah, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Slavic uh, Muslims getting butchered. Um, the types of people that were going there, um, of course, Daryl's made a correct connection. Into, you know, Italy had a very strong connection, and there's a reason for that to do with scholars and so forth. But there were also people that were coming over from Yemen, from Saudi Arabia. I'll give you one sto- small story. Uh, when I was in a mosque in Munich, um, in, in, in transit between Bosnia and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and Britain, and I was really tired and walked into this famous mosque in Munich, uh, didn't know anybody there, and just saw a sleeping bag and crashed out on that sleeping bag. So somebody came and woke me up. What are you doing on my sleeping bag? And it was a young Arab man, young Yemeni man. I said, I'm sorry, bro, I've just come back from Bosnia. And he said, Bosnia? And I said, yeah. He said, please come with me. He said, Take, he takes me down to this room. They've got food and everything. There's a whole bunch of young Yemenis there. Uh, and... Um, one of them says he works for the UN. The other one says that he's a, a trainee doctor. The other one says he's God knows what else. And I don't think any of those are true. But the point is, they're all en route to Yemen. They've got somebody they know in, Ye- uh, sorry, to, in Bosnia from the Yemeni community. And they're all part of this movement to get people over there. And the Yemenis themselves had had some experience because it's heavily armed because of the internal war that had taken place there. So some of the Yemenis, Yemenis became tank drivers, uh, anti-aircraft uh, um, um, weapon use as though there were no aircraft at the time they were using them on, on, on the ground. Um, so there was all this sort of stuff. So there was a, it was one of the fascinating, fascinating things of Bosnia was this internationalism. Everybody coming from every part of the world, different languages, different faces, different colors. And having been born and raised in the UK, where I had been targeted and beaten up by skinheads for, for my color, um, it was to see these literally black, white, um, Asian, uh, East Asian colors all coming and uh, mixing together. And that was one of the things that attracted me. I also came as part of an aid convoy. In fact, I took about at least seven or eight aid convoys across Europe, uh, all the way until past the war. Um, but eventually when I joined for a very brief period, the Khatib al-Mujahideen or the, the, the uh, Army of or the, the third corpus of it, um, it was that was, that was attractive and uh, and the, the kind of mythology or the, the truth of the Mujahideen there was that they were highly, highly motivated. 
And part of that motivation, of course, was to defend the Muslims. The other part was, and it's something I've heard from American soldiers, I don't fight for this flag. I don't fight for this president. I fight for the brother on my side. And I understood that. Exactly. Okay. That's, I mean, that's very, very powerful. And I think that that really speaks to um, so many of uh, the experiences that Daryl writes about um, in his book. You know, we've got a lot of content to, to get through. We don't act, it's surprising how quickly the time goes with these things, right? So, you know, I would love to talk more and maybe we can still speak more about the kind of experiences that you guys were having in Bosnia. But, you know, Daryl, um, to come back to you, um, Bosnia uh, within the context of the global war on terror has now somehow been inserted into this kind of genealogy of the history of terrorism. So when people tell the history of terrorism now or political violence as um, some of us prefer to call it, um, what they do is that they say, well, Bosnia is one of the starting points for this. And I think one of the great things about your book is that you, you so effectively help us to understand, you know, how that is such a political statement that's being made and how untrue it is in many ways. So maybe if you could um, speak a little bit about that, and because I do want to circle back with, with uh, through Barbara and Marzam to speak a little bit about the Katiba, who of course you uh, studied a great deal for the book as well. Yeah, so um, I think the, the typical story, right, is that um, the Soviets invade Afghanistan in 1979, the US and the Saudis help the Afghans kicked the Soviets out and some, you know, a band of crazy Arabs showed up and played a role. And then um, afterwards, the, the band of crazy Arabs went off and did 9-11, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the, you know, the potted narrative. And uh, what ends up happening is that all of the different wars that happened in the 90s that involved Muslim populations kind of get, you know, retroactively jammed into the 9-11 narrative, right? So Bosnia, Chechnya, Kashmir, everything gets reduced to, you know, how does this relate to Osama bin Laden? How does this relate to Al-Qaeda? So, you know, there were certainly individuals who fought in Bosnia, who later ended up in Al-Qaeda. I mean, the thing is, even at the time of the war, Al-Qaeda, as we know it, didn't really exist. And there's actually quite a debate among the small, like, coterie of experts about, like, you know, like when can we even say there was a thing called Al-Qaeda? But I think it's pretty safe to say that like in that 90s, in that early 90s period, even Bin Laden was not the Bin Laden who people came to know later on. So yes, there were individuals who were in Bosnia and then later ended up part of Al-Qaeda, but the the vast majority, you know, that has, the, who went and fought were just pursuing the very simple agenda of going and fighting in Bosnia against, uh, you know, atrocities committed against the Muslim population. Um, and what's also interesting about the jihad in Bosnia is that unlike in a lot of other places where you have this kind of transnational movement, uh, the ones in Bosnia were fighting on the side of a recognized government, right? So in Afghanistan, they were fighting against a Soviet-backed regime. In, in Chechnya, they're fighting against the Russian government, right? In Bosnia, they're fighting on the side of a recognized government, right? Which is also avowedly, you know, multinational, multi-ethnic and secular. Um, so you have this Katiba, this battalion, which is like about a thousand or 1200 guys, half foreign, half Bosnian, um, who uh, choose their own leaders, 
who have their own Islamic education program, which is more or less like Salafi, for lack of a better term, um, and raise their own funds from around the world. Um, but at the same time, they're cooperating with and they're taking orders from, you know, a Bosnian government that doesn't necessarily reflect all of these things, even though it is very much, you know, um, committed to protecting Muslims and some sense of Muslim identity and Muslim nationhood in, in Bosnia. Um, so anyway, that's just part of the, you know, when you get into like the basic facts of the situation, right? It's just really obvious that the attempt to kind of fold it all into a 9-11 or war on terror story is, you know, deeply flawed. Thank you. And, you know, uh, thanks also for the work that you did on, on, on Barbara's case, because Barbara, if I turn to you, you know, one of the remarkable things about the judgment in your case, of course, is that, you know, despite all of the, the rhetoric and the narrative about Muslims and jihad and conflict uh, in, in the US, that you had a judge who was willing to look at the kind of evidence that people like Daryl's uh, providing, people like Alex Strickland, Scotton, and other scholars that we have, uh, Mark Sageman, and say, well, actually, not everything that the US government deems as being connected to the global war on terror necessarily is. Um, and so, you know, and, and what was also interesting about your case, I guess, uh, the number of people that gave testimony uh, about um, you, about your character, uh, people who had been involved in the jihad in different ways. Um, so can you give us a bit more kind of background to that? You know, why, why, why is that so important when we're understanding, you know, Bosnia's significance today? So, um, moving on from what um, moving on from what uh, Daryl said, um, this like linear line from Bosnia to to nine eleven, it started from a guy called uh, Evan Coleman, and he's probably listening here, but he wouldn't be under his own name. So, hi Evan, if uh, if you're there. Um, so, Evan Coleman was basically uh, like, a, he was also 18, so our sort of journey started at the age of 18. He was like a freshman, which is like a, you know, a first year at his, uh, university. He's 18, and he's deputy head of this um, uh, anti-Muslim uh, uh, think tank run by this guy called Stephen Emerson. Um, so anyway, so Azam, like the, the site for which I, I spent time in prison, we were, I think we set up in 96, which was uh, three years before Google, quite a rudimentary website, but it was a site that was, um, it was giving information about jihad in Bosnia, stories of, of the you know people that were killed there. And then it, later on, it was giving information about the war in Chechnya. Um, so this Coleman guy, he's sitting there and in his spare time, he's going on and he's like, uh, um, reading up all of this stuff and so at some point I think it was in 2001 or 2002 so he got the material together from all of these like videos and, and audios and, and stuff from our website and uh, he paid some uh, company in England to publish uh, to self-publish uh, his book and he called it um, Al-Qaeda's uh, Al Jihad in Europe so it says yes yeah, so that was after 9-11 because he wanted to ride that wave because at that point, you could anyone could say, you know, Al-Qaeda's name and you would just, you know, you, you would make it. Um, so he wrote this book and essentially what he said was that all of these guys who went to Bosnia means people like 
me, people like the, the these guys from Italy, and I met lots of them, people like the Yemenis that Muslim met, people like the Saudis, people like, I met guys from Japan, uh, Paraguay, South Africa, uh, Malaysia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, Gambia, uh, that all of these guys, they only went to Bosnia as part of this, of Bin Laden's secret plan to basically take over Europe and, and, and uh, um, you know, Islamize the whole of Bosnia and from there, you know, Islamize the whole of uh, uh, Europe, take over Europe, and then, then to launch attacks against uh, America and the West and everything. So he wrote that, and um, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So he became, uh, you know, he, he's now coming on TV and he's written this book, and he started testifying against a lot of people. Um, Ali Tamim is one of the most famous cases. He went and testified, and he's brought in as a government expert. So this guy's like 22 years old or something like that. He comes in as a government expert. And he locked a lot of people up. Um, so by the time I got to face his testimony, a lot of time had passed because I spent eight years fighting extradition in prison in the UK. And um, by the time we got to actually face uh, Coldman, and like one of uh, the experts on my case, he said, he said that you created Coldman, such so that Frankenstein creates a monster. And then um, at some point, they have a showdown and either Frankenstein, you know, kills the monster or the monster kills uh, Frankenstein. So um, in this case, um, we, um, you know, we basically, we, we destroyed uh, Coleman and that was with the help of my lawyer, Kelly, Kelly Barrett. I think it was one seven hour legal visit in the Supermax uh, prison. And uh, she just wrote this, I was giving the information and she's writing the motion. And we essentially showed this guy out to be, um, you know, not to be what he was claiming to be. We pointed out a number of inaccuracies in his uh, in his book. We pointed out bits where he had copied and pasted. So he's right. He submitted an expert report in 2014, and he said that yes, like the arrests of such and such people last week, and those people arrested in 2007. So he'd actually like copied and pasted the whole paragraph. He didn't even even change that. And he, this guy's getting like hundreds of pounds an hour to do that. Um, and as a result of we pointed out all of these things uh, about him. And just to give you a context of who this guy was, um, Anders Breivik is the Norwegian far-right terrorist who killed 77 people um, in 2011 on the island of uh, uh, Utoria. And he killed 77 like young Norwegian teenagers. And he he had this like he published this 1500 page uh, manifesto about why he was doing what he was doing and i, I read it i actually read the the, the whole uh, <laughs> i had nothing better to do sitting in isolation and uh you know you know how times are bad when i'm, I'm when you're reading like a 1500 page manifesto of some crazy guy and um there was an entire chapter that he had taken out of coleman's book about Bosnia to say that the reason I'm doing this because these Islamists they want to take over Europe and they want to take over Norway and therefore this is that's one of his motivations for for what he was uh, for what he was uh, uh, doing. So um, anyway, so cut a long story short, um, we with the help of people like Daryl and we had other experts as well who actually said that uh, I mean one thing I remember reading from Daryl's work where he said that. Uh, 
that I, I looked at a lot of material that was put out by Al-Qaeda and I looked at by statements that were put out by Bin Laden, by Zawahiri and I found them, um, and Daryl can correct me if this is wrong, he said, I found them taking responsibility. So Bin Laden saying that, yeah, we were in Somalia and yeah, we fought US troops in Yemen and yeah, we were in Afghanistan and yeah, we did these embassy bombings and yes, we did this, yes, we did that. But he said, I could not find a single statement or quote or anything of them saying that yes we were in bosnia as well because they weren't like ideologically they weren't and things were you know it wasn't that uh, they had other priorities bin laden at that time was in uh, um he was in the sudan and he had his own he was focusing on algeria and what's happening in sudan he didn't have and even even uh, i remember that even i think around about 94 um a group of uh, scholars from the, 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 the Arabian Gulf and someone told me this that they went and they visited Bin Laden in, uh, when he was in Sudan and they basically went to complain and to ask him that why are you not you should be more involved in Bosnia you know we need military help we, we need uh, um, the people there they need help they need money you should be you know you should be more involved that you are and his answer was basically that look my sympathies is with them but you know, we're focusing on uh, on the situation in Sudan or Algeria, and you know, we don't want to go around ambulance chasing and and, and whatever. Um, so to cut a long story short, we we um, we got a lot of material together, and we destroyed Coleman. And as a result of that, not only was he taken off my case, where the U.S. government actually withdrew him his testimony in my case, but they also there was a number of other cases that he was involved in. And they actually stopped using him as uh, as an expert from a number of those uh, other cases uh, as well. So, what you what you get from this is one guy who says the right thing at the right time to the right people, and there's still people that are spending you know have life sentences. They're in the American prison system or even in Guantanamo and other places from this uh, from this kid who basically you know who came up with this theory and he wrote this and and, and this is the effect that uh, that it had yeah thank you um and Marzim, i want to come to you in a second but i just want to get uh daryl to speak about one thing quickly which is um this now famous footnote that you have in your book relating to coleman uh which you know so many people have shared with me since uh, since the book's release um because you know, there, there is this really amazing moment in your book where you really unpick Coleman's uh, presentation of uh, the jihad in Bosnia. And it really centers around this one character, Abu Abdelaziz. Why is this so important? Um, not only for then, but also for the, the discourse around terrorism now. Um, so I... You know, I hesitate to pile on because, you know, Babur described in such detail how problematic this person is. And, you know, I don't want to make it all about like an individual. But I think, you know, it is true that, you know, the war on terror created a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurial people, or maybe we should just say charlatans, uh, to build careers, to, you know, get a lot of government contracting dollars through, um, you know, different forms of demonizing Muslims and, you know, um, including in, you know, self-denominated terror expertise. So this book that Bobber mentioned, I mean, there's, 
there's like all this plagiarism in it. I mean, he obviously didn't know any of the languages. A lot of it is just like, you know, doing a Google news search and then kind of just pasting together what you find. Um, but the, the biggest kind of um, sort of, you know, error or problem is that he has a whole chapter at the beginning of the book about one of the early leaders of the Arab Mujahideen in Bosnia. And uh, the problem is he talks about, he basically takes two completely different people and mashes them together into one character. And part of the problem is that one of the people who he thinks is the leader of the Arab Mujahideen in Bosnia in the 1990s is a Saudi scholar who actually died in 1979. Um, as a fact that is actually referenced in one of the sources in his own footnotes, right? So this is like, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of like the details of this stuff, but just to give you a sense of like how like absurd a lot of this work is. And yet, you know, as Bob alluded to, it gets cited over and over and over again. So there's this way that like, and also because there's this nexus where like the so-called experts are working hand in glove with the government. So they'll feed the government information and the government will use that in a legal document that they, you know, like as part of an allegation. And then of course, experts can then say, oh, government documents reveal such and such, even though it actually is the original garbage that they came up with, right? So there's this like echo chamber of follies where these experts and where certain, you know, police officers, prosecutors, whatever, can keep sort of relying on each other's expertise and, and spinning out and perpetuating a whole bunch of falsehoods. Brilliant, thank you. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I was hoping you'd, you'd help clarify. Marzam, you know, we can talk about the theory of like Coleman and, you know, why his kind of rubbish research has been so kind of impactful for terrorism studies. And again, this genealogy of terrorism, right? That's all very, very important. But ultimately, it has a human impact. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the, the Algerians who ended up in Guantanamo, because, you know, obviously as Cage, that's a large part of this stuff is our focus on the way that people have been impacted by these policies, by this legislation. And the stories of the Bosnian Algerians are so important because again, these are men that, that were helping in various ways during that period. You know, they've got their own, uh, at least two of them have their own book now, um, which is important for us to read. So can you just tell us a bit more about them? Yeah, I mean, before that, it's important that the kind of a bit of a backdrop as to so we understand that you, uh, as um, um, Daryl alluded to, that this is a conflict where we're not necessarily on the bad side. I, I remember seeing, I'm sure Barbara did, I even stayed for a, an amount of time with Pakistani United Nations soldiers. I met with British uh, unperforced soldiers, uh, and we saw all of them, the Malaysians and everybody else. They were all there, but they were armed to the teeth, and they had, um, you know, weapons, they had the most advanced uh, mechanized systems, and yet the massacres were taking place, which uh, was even worse. Uh, the Turks were there, everybody was there. The most armed, toughest nations in the world were physically present and they let it happen. And the presence of the Mujahideen cannot be understated in that regard because at the time, um, the, the, the locals welcomed them and many of the locals uh, uh, married in to the, to, to, uh, to, to the foreigners. And this is an, an important and an interesting um, uh, thing I've seen, that we've seen the term foreign fighters, for example, used to describe um, 
such people, past and now to Sully in present. But nobody uses the term foreign fighter there or even in the Arabic language now. Um, so nobody uses the term of, of al-muqatilina al-atnabiyya. Nobody says that. Nobody says that at all. It's the West jumping the queue once again for a situation they don't understand or are not part of. Um, oh, and also I should just point out that foreign fighters um, under the banner of the West are not foreign fighters. They're peacekeepers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, no, no I, I was going to get to that. Um, but my point was... Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to... Uh, yeah, my point was here is in the Arabic and the Islamic lexicon, uh, these... Uh, we or those people who came along, depending where you were, were known as either Al-Ansar, the helpers, or if you go today in modern day Syria, because people actually go to migrate as opposed to go to simply fight, they're known as Muhajirin. So they're known during, uh, with, these, with this kind of language. And uh, yes, what I was going to say is in terms of the, the, the presence of those troops who'd come from all over the world, and are, they are the ones that are armed. Nobody's describing them as foreign fighters, A, because um, the, 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 the notion of being foreign makes them other and they're not really helping. But more importantly, they're not fighters, even though they're armed to the teeth. And that's why people came along. And, and so the point I was going to make about the welcoming of, so the foreigners started to come all people from different parts of the Muslim world that Bosnia did have a historic connection to. Remember, it's, it's much, much further, further down. It's by the, um, uh, uh, towards the, the, the um, uh, Mediterranean. And so people were coming to Bosnia often through uh, Croatia and so forth. And we had, for example, a number of Sudanese, a number of uh, Kuwaiti and other uh, organizations that had been based in Croatia and that were working in, in Bosnia. Um, and then as, well, as time went on, people came and they married and they settled. And there's still people that from that conflict who are married to Bosnians to this day, but several of them have been forcibly separated and sent back to their homes of origin and been uh, put into prison because by definition, the Western definition of a terrorist was anybody who'd taken place, had taken part in armed conflict, which was, of course, um, uh, deeply troubling and problematic because the West had supported Mujahideen in Afghanistan um, during the, uh, the height of the Soviet occupation. So now these guys were getting picked up. Um, in the case of the ones that you're, uh, you're talking about, uh, Asim, uh, the, the, the Algerians who had moved to Bosnia, many of them had come after the war and were not even involved in the conflict. Um, but then when the uh, Bush's infamous statement, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists, that pressure was put on everyone, including the Bosnian government. And the first uh, kind of cannon fodder in the midst of all of this uh, were these individuals who were sent, literally kidnapped from their homes the, the, and taken in vehicles. And uh, literally, I remember one of the sisters explaining to me when it was happening, when, she, when there was a conference here with Amnesty International, explaining exactly what had happened in front of her and how these individuals were taken from their homes by the secret police in front of everyone. It's, this is in broad daylight. And uh, they're sitting on top of them in a vehicle and taking them away and handing them over to the Americans, even though it violates every single legal process they have. Um, because now America's top dog, America's been hurt and it's calling the shots. I didn't know the role of Evan Coleman uh, in all of this uh, at all. Um, I didn't know that he, he contributed to or uh, Anders Breivik had taken from his, from his work. Um, but it's this type of lazy uh, research that was picked up on by the United States of America and used then, not just, of course, I mean, Bosnia, nobody cared about Bosnia at that time. When Bosnia happened, nobody cared about it. But in, uh, later on, 
when the Americans knew that I had been in Bosnia, ah, there's proof, there's more evidence that you were a terrorist. And I remember just the one thing to end on. I mean, it's just it, it, an average American soldier. He tells me this when, when I'm hooded and shackled and the guns are being pointed at me and I've been stripped naked and I'm hearing the screams of other prisoners. This American soldier comes along and he says to me, you know, we helped y'all in Bosnia and y'all stabbed us in the back. I said, oh my God, really? I mean, th uh, one does recognize the American role. They came in after the genocide, after the genocide had happened, after the race camps had taken place. Yes, the Americans came in and they bombed the Serbs, but it was the Mujahideen on the ground who shed the blood. And more importantly, how does one transfer that idea to the next? We helped you there and you stabbed us in the back. So we, all of us, collectively are responsible for something for an attacking a country we, we, we've never been to, have no, no aspiration to visit. I didn't even know what the Twin Towers were. I can put up my hands and say, I didn't even know what the Twin Towers were until I heard about them on that fateful day. Now, thank you, Marzen, for, for sharing that. Um, you know, it makes me uh, think actually to some of the, the interviews that I've done um, in Bosnia myself with, with people who are affected. A lot of people don't know this, that actually the very first detentions that took place after 9-11, and this is within um, the first week or so, were in Bosnia. So you had Abdul Hakim Khafegi, Nihal Karcic, Almin Hardos, um, you know, these uh, young people, well, uh, uh, Khafegi was, was quite elderly, right? But they were picked up, they were taken to the American uh, base in Tuzla, uh, helicoptered there, they were kept in like containers and beaten and tortured. And these guys had nothing to do with anything to do with um, international terrorism. You know, they had nothing to do with um, Al-Qaeda, you know, just because they were working with the Saudi Red Crescent Society. But it just, it tells you a little bit uh, about the response so people, they think of the response in like very, very big terms. But at a granular level, whether it was in Bosnia or it was in Pakistan or Afghanistan, there were these immediate reactions taking place that were very, very harmful. They were very damaging. Um, but there's, there's a whole series of cases. I mean, the, in, in, in some ways, because of Guantanamo, because of Guantanamo Bay, we, we ended up hearing about the stories of the Algerians. Um, but there were other cases that were taking place in Bosnia. And very quickly, too, people like Abu Hamza uh, Asori um, and, and many others who Daryl has, has interviewed at length. You know, I interviewed them myself as well, but mashallah, Daryl did a, a much more amazing job of keeping in touch with them and really following their cases through, where they had their citizenships removed. And, you know, in the UK, we complain about citizenship deprivation, and now it's becoming more and more common um, on the European continent, but actually this started very early in the war on terror with Bosnia. It was a, it was a trick that they played. They said that these guys, um, these, all these foreigners who, who came uh, either before, during or after the Jihad, they're not really Bosnian citizens. You know, we're going to remove their citizenship because we don't trust the way they were given it. And we're going to allow them to be uh, uh, kidnapped by, by America and taken to, to Guantanamo in the case of some of the others that they would be removed from the country. So Daryl, could you, could, you, could you tell us about that kind of lasting legacy of um, you know, these guys, some of whom were Mujahideen, who did fight yeah. for, for Bosnia, but ended up in this um, Kafkaesque kind of system of having their citizenship removed and trying to fight that? 
Yeah, so as, as Mazam mentioned, um, a few hundred of these uh, non-Bosnian activists, people who had fought, people who had done aid work, um, settled down in Bosnia after the war. Most of them married Bosnian women, got citizenship, just, you know, immigrated, basically. Um, I should also mention that the vast majority of the Mujahideen left at the end of the war, and they were, effect- they were basically asked to leave by the Bosnian government because it was placed under enormous pressure um, by the United States. Um, now, a lot of those folks also had no intention of staying in Bosnia, so it was fine anyway. But basically, uh, at the end of the war, the Katiba was disbanded. Um, its leadership was killed under very, very suspicious circumstances. Um, and the, the U.S., the Croatian and Bosnian governments uh, arranged for an evacuation of most of the fighters. Um, but as I mentioned, relatively small number stayed, married, became Bosnian citizens. Um, as Muslim alluded to, the six Algerians were basically um, kidnapped um, they were handed over to the U.S. government even after a Bosnian court said that there was no evidence um, to justify holding them. Um, but the Bosnians were basically coerced into giving them to the U.S. and they were then sent to Guantanamo. That incident generated a lot of pushback in Bosnia. There were protests. People were really unhappy. I mean, Bosnia basically was a... was. Um, an international protectorate, right? So the US and the EU are there telling them, you know, about human rights and good governance and how to run their country. Um, but at the same time, completely flouting those rules when it was convenient for them. So after that, the US decided, okay, we want to get rid of these people, but we want to be a little bit more careful and legalistic about it. We can't just ship them off to Guantanamo. So they made the Bosnian government set up this special commission to review all of the naturalizations that had been given. Um, This commission had nine members, uh, two from each of Bosnia's major national groups, and then three uh, foreigners, including a US Air Force officer and um, someone from Scotland Yard. And this commission uh, went through the process of basically denationalizing any uh, Muslim who they deemed to be suspicious. Um, So in the end, I think about 600 people lost their Bosnian citizenship um, without any like real trial or evidentiary process. The appeal procedure was severely, severely limited. So a number of the folks who I spoke to while researching my book, including uh, the gentleman Asim mentioned, Abu Hamza Suri, who was a Syrian veteran of the jihad, um, were directly affected by this. These are people who had Bosnian families, Bosnian children, and... Um, <clears throat> The idea essentially was that once their Bosnian citizenship was removed, then they could be deported to their countries of origin. And in most of those places, um, the U.S. could be confident that they would be imprisoned, um, possibly tortured, possibly executed. Um, So this was, a again, because Guantanamo got so much attention, it was so notorious, everyone was kind of focusing on that. But in the meantime, the U.S. was just doing its everyday sort of work of imperial management, trying to get countries to ship captives from one place to another in a way that just looked like kind of everyday extradition, deportation type of stuff. I'm sorry, Barber, um, you know, you got all of these uh, connections being made to, um, you know, people who are in Bosnia and, you know, so-called international terrorism. You were, of course, um, you know, you've, talked about uh, having fought in Bosnia and your motivations for doing so. A standard trope 
within kind of terrorism studies um, as they're presented these days is that um, being in one conflict uh, naturally predisposes you to want to carry out that conflict back home. You know, something that they uh, often refer to as blowback. They've got various names for these types of theories. Whether they say it's because um, people are ideologically inclined towards carrying on the fight elsewhere or that um, they suffer trauma and therefore want to carry on fighting elsewhere. You know, and one, one of the, the very first case I, I, I ever wrote out straight out of my master's uh, publicly was, was, was in your case, because, you know, when they arrested you uh, for the first time and then started extradition proceedings against you, like, I knew, you know, who you were. Like, I didn't need somebody to tell me that you weren't a terrorist because, you know, I, I remember the lessons that you and others uh, of your generation had imparted on a, on a much younger me. And so there was never any question in my mind. But that's the thing, right? You were still treated within that nexus. Um, so, the, you know, the, the question is, like, why didn't you? You know, because it seems that that's a standard uh, response, you know, and, and, you know, why... And how and what lessons can we learn about that in terms of your leaving Bosnia, coming back to the UK, and then of course uh, ultimately getting a position at Imperial University? Um, that's a good question, a very important um, question. I remember during my first visit, so I'm 18, and I've uh, just gone there for a few weeks, and um, I was actually torn. After what I'd seen, I was actually torn. So I was in this little um, village called um, called Bialabucha, which is somewhere near Travnik in central Bosnia. And we were a small village that was under siege by the Serbs on the mountains around us, and I spent some time there. So I was actually torn between, do I just stay here and um, pack up my university and not go back to England because this is... You know, the people here, they need me here and I, sh I should, I mean, even though, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, like, <laughs> you use this term that, yeah, Barbara's a veteran. I mean, veteran is, I, I was like the lowest, I think the only thing lower in rank than me was like the horses and the, and, and the dogs that, 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 that we had. So I was like the lowest level, you know, like I was just a, a guy with a gun, like, like you know, literally cannon fodder. So, uh, you know, the veteran is a very... You know, again, uh, I like using that term, the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. But it's not, I didn't even consider myself a veteran. I'm just a guy who turned up there and then was given a gun and didn't know what he was doing much. Uh, but um, anyway, so when I was heading back, so when I, I was in two mines, and then I went and I spoke to um, one of the leaders who was a Libyan doctor. He was one of the leaders from the Katiba and... Um, uh, Dr. Abul Harith, uh, uh, Libby, uh, Libyan uh, doctor from uh, Austria. And uh, he later became, he was one of the leaders, one of the senior people there. And he spoke English. And, and I spoke to him and I said, look, you know, um, what shall I do? You know, I'm in university, you know, and, but you guys here, you need me. I've seen the situation. I just want to stay here. And so what he said to me, he said, look, he said, we've got plenty of people here that can pick up guns. He said, go and finish your studies. And while you're finishing your studies, you know, there's things that you can help us with. You can send us money or there may be certain things that you can help us with, which uh, the people here, they can't do. So 
in my case, I had an older, wise, educated, respected person telling me, go back, carry on your studies, and while you're there, this thing, these are, this is how you can help us. Other people have gone to, not Bosnia, but they've gone to other conflict zones or war zones around the world, and they've asked their elders or their respected people, you know, I'm not sure, what should I do? And they've told them that, yeah, you go back to, a, to London and you rent a truck out and then you drive it into a, into a place where there's people coming out of a, of a nightclub and you kill them. And that's what they've gone. That's what they've gone, and uh, that's what they've gone and done. So, in my case, the, the 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 people you're saying that why didn't I do this? Because and this is just an example of, of a personal conversation that I had with to do with my personal circumstance. But the mindset, the mentality that we had there. So when I came out of Bosnia, the mentality I came out with, I didn't see England as my enemy in any way, and. I knew, obviously, I knew the double standards, the UN, I'd seen all of that. I was there just after Srebrenica. I'd seen all of that happen. I still didn't see America or Britain. I didn't see, see them as like enemies of, uh, of Muslims. My thing was, my mindset when I came out of Bosnia is Muslims are under attack and it, we can't wait for the UN or anyone else to protect us. We've got to do it ourselves. So as soon as I get back to, to, to England, I'm thinking, okay, and this is amongst my like, peers and all the friends and everyone else that I know. So as Dara said, that a lot of them, they left, you know, they had to leave after the war ended. And so you've got guys, those who could travel, you've got guys probably in that same mosque in Munich, they're probably crashing out there. You've got people in London, you've got people in, in, you had like, at one point you had like 100 like Saudis staying in hotels in, uh, in Istanbul, close to the Blue Mosque. And I think they got rounded up and, you know, politely shown the door. Um, so all over the world. And what are we talking about? What's the next place? Okay. One, some guy wants to go to Ugadin, which is some, some obscure region of, of like on the border of Somalia and Ethiopia. And we don't even know where that is, what it is, but people are saying, oh, there's, is there a way? There's the route there. These are the conversations that are happening. Someone's talking about Chechnya, someone's talking about Kashmir, someone's talking about Philippines. We want to go somewhere and we want to defend Muslims. We don't care about the geopolitics. We don't care where it is. We don't care who those people are, what their color is. We don't even care what they're fighting for. We just, as long as there are Muslims under attack, we want to physically go there and we want to fight because this is what we did in Bosnia. And this is what our peers, who, or, or not even our peers, but our seniors, that's what they did in Afghanistan uh, just before that. So hence, I'm in this frame of mind. And then 9-11 happened. And then after that, you know, suddenly, yeah, all of you guys are, are the same. And, and then we get caught. So compared to the current, I think it's quite difficult. And one of the difficulties of looking at history from the lens of today is you, 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 you forget the context. Not even forget, but you cannot have that context. You say to someone, you know, like, and I've said this to journalists and I've got angry at journalists. I said, don't use the word jihad. Don't call the word jihad or jihadist when people are like burning people alive or, or they're like, uh, 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 you know, cutting people's heads off in a church. Don't use that term because I take offense. I find it offensive because I was there and I have friends who gave their lives in the, in the sake of, or in, in, you know, in, in, for, the, for the sake of Allah, but in the, under the banner of jihad. 
in order to protect innocent people. I saw their bodies. And now you're coming and saying to me that, that, uh, that yeah, these are both the same. I said, I'm offended by that. You shouldn't, shouldn't you know, use it any term you like, but don't use uh, such terms. So the world was different. And it is fair to say 9-11, it just changed everything. It changed the world. I mean, something that big, it, it has to change the world. But it's been 20 years since then. And there's a lot of lessons that people need to see. And, and especially, and, and maybe there are some young people that are, um, that are listening to this, um, who are inspired by events that are happening in Syria, for example, in places like that. There was a time in our lifetimes where jihad was like that practice at the time of the Prophet. You know, that did exist. It's not like you see today where you grab a knife, grab a hammer, grab, grab a book, grab anything you can, and the first non Muslim you, you see just going to attack him. There was a time when it wasn't like that. And this isn't actually an uh, abomination or this is an aberration. This is something that I knew that didn't, uh, that didn't exist. I mean, those are powerful words. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's amazing to have people like yourself and Mazen, um, you know, to help provide uh, much of that guidance. And um, before I bring Mazen in, Daryl, um, you know, obviously Bosnia is not the only um, historical conflict that you've studied. You know, I know that you've done, um, looked at a lot of uh, other areas. You've looked at Syria, you've looked at Afghanistan as well to some extent. How do we how do we understand the the West's narrative in relation to these different conflicts? Um, because sometimes they're called mujahideen, and sometimes they're called terrorists. Um, even if you look at, say, for example, the the kind of cognitive dissonance between the way that Libya um, and the fall of Gaddafi was treated, as opposed to the way that Bashar al-Assad is spoken about, there is, there is. I mean, there, these are two things that are that were happening at the same time as one another, and yet the narrative arcs within the media at political levels are so fundamentally different from one another. How how do we understand this? And you know, as a as a scholar of of political violence, you know, it would be, it'd be great to get your thoughts. Oh, I think this is. I don't think you need to be a scholar of anything. It's pretty straightforward, right? When when, when Muslims are fighting and they are doing so in a way that aligns with the interests of the U.S., um, they are mujahideen, right? And that term entered widespread usage in American, you know, media um, in, during the 1980s, right? Um, I mean, remember, like, you know, these were the Afghan mujahideen leaders uh, met with Ronald Reagan in the White House. Or I think there was a Rambo three that's like dedicated to the, you know, the brave Mujahideen fighters, right, in, in Afghanistan. Um, and of course, you know, when they're, when they're not fighting, you know, when they're, when, they're, when they're seen as the enemy of the U.S., right, then they're, you know, jihadis, jihadists, fanatics, and so on. Um, I think cases like Bosnia and Syria are, um, are interesting because they don't fall neatly within one or the other. And I think, you know, in the situations where the U.S. either you know, whether it's, you can say it's because they're confused or you can say that they're just extra devious and trying to let all the sides bleed out. Um, that's where you see a lot of interesting and messy um, slipperiness, right? So for example, in the Bosnian case, on the one hand, the US government supported a UN arms embargo that basically prevented the Bosnian Muslims from defending themselves. 
Um, on the other hand, at the end of the war, you know, they came in, they came late to the party, they bombed the Bosnian Serbs for two weeks, and then they brokered a peace agreement, right? So it's, you can't exactly say that they were like, on one side or the other side, I think it's more fair to say that they were content to let the various sides kind of, you know, exhaust themselves through fighting, and then they could kind of, you know, come in and, and you know, uh, rule the roost, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I think you captured uh, that, that 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 perfectly well, and 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 Marzen, you know, obviously you've uh, you've you, you've been through that whole trajectory of um, Bosnia, and then later you went to Afghanistan. Not the first period, but the second period, and you saw um, the different actors, the characters that um, were coming to these places, and they and their different motivations. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that you say quite regularly when you're talking about your experience is actually, you know, when, uh, you know, people say to you, you know, like, Packy, go home. And then, you know, you turn around and say, well, I did try. <laughs> so, uh, you know, t- tell me a-, a bit about that, right? Because, you know, obviously Afghanistan in some ways was presented as, a, as an opportunity. It had its own internal problems. You did have foreigners like yourself like i mean foreigners in a in a citizenship sense rather than in a ummawi sense uh, as we might say um you know how how do we understand um that that desire to move um to another place um okay so this is an important thing because i mentioned earlier on there's this concept uh of in bosnia for example that the fighters were known as al-ansar because they came to help Nobody sensed that they'd actually come there to live. So they, um, uh, the other conflict force that I've been involved or have been involved in, or to some degree, was Syria, and, and that's kind of more recent. So in Afghanistan, there really wasn't this kind of. Um, uh, yes, there were people that came for different reasons. It was different. Bosnia was almost exclusively people coming uh, for, for, uh, because of the nature of the conflict and the brutality of it being in the heart of Europe. People were coming to fight almost exclusively. There may be a few who didn't. Um, from like from the aid workers and so forth. Afghanistan was a bit different. It was uh, there was many different intentions behind people going there. There were some who came to fight with uh, the Taliban against the Northern Alliance. There were others who'd come to live and work on uh, pro- aid work, work projects like myself uh, and to build schools. There were others who were uh, there because of familial connections and so forth. Different reasons. Um, but again, after 9/11, everybody got thrown into the same thing. To the same to the point that even those who were fighting or connected to Kashmiri, um, the Kashmiri struggle. Uh, there were camps, for example, where people came to train to go and fight in Kashmir. Uh, they were all targeted, the whole lot of them. The Americans did not differentiate. In fact, when they bombed Afghanistan, I believe in 1996 or seven, after the, the, the USS, no, the, the, the um, Tanzania bombings uh, and, and Nairobi bombings for retaliation, they hit a Kashmiri camp, which had nothing to do with it. What they did as a result is that make another group of Muslims despise the United States of America for, what, for, its, for its lazy research. Um, one thing I wanted to mention is really important is that this concept of jihad is really important for Muslims. Ba- Barbara said it very articulately about how he takes great offense at people who do those things that we never learned, we never, we never taught them. And, a, and an important point is that, uh, I remember that at that time, somebody, a friend of mine, who, um, he said that we need to actually start campaigning within uh, policy and within the government to, to, to make jihad something as part of Islam recognized. 
Because if we look back historically, jihad has been recognized when it suits British purposes. So, for example, there were fatwas for jihad given um, uh, for British uh, people in, the, in India, in the colonies, to go and fight jihad against um, the Germans. That was jihad. Britain fought um, battles in support of the Ottoman Caliphate at, at the uh, Battle of the Crimea, uh, the charge of the Light Brigade against Tsarist Russia. That was in support of jihad. Uh, there were fundraisings taking place here for Imam Shamil in the West Midlands in the 1850s. Um, so Britain supports jihad whenever it suits its purpose. But the problem for us as Muslims, we didn't get on it when we should have. And we should have said that just like all of the other pillars of Islam, jihad is an intrinsic part. It had rules of engagement. There are things you can do. There are things that you cannot do. And one of the things that you cannot call, it's like, imagine if you go and uh, you, you say that I'm going to, my prayer is going to be, I'm going to stop and stand on top of a building and do 50 star jumps. That is my salah. Uh, nobody would accept it. Uh, and in the same way, when somebody comes along and says that I will go and drive a car and run over people, I will blow up innocent women and children, I will slice off heads in a church uh, and say that is jihad. Well, because it's already established that jihad is not this, what you're doing is criminal and therefore you will be regarded as such. But the problem is, is that the average Joe feels that uh, justified in saying that this is jihad, uh, just as much as uh, the prime minister can say it, the average Joe can say it. And we, the Muslims who are supposed to own this narrative, can't say anything about a religion that we practice and take deep, deep uh, offense on it. Um, so that has been one of the biggest problems in all of this. Uh, and the hypocrisy of this cannot be understated. As late as 2014, the British government, the United States of America, was supporting the Free Syrian Army, which was fighting alongside Mujahideen. The Free Syrian Army still to this day called themselves Mujahideen. And they were sending in bombing sorties, uh, supporting the Libyan Mujahideen um, in, in, against Gaddafi. So all of the, in all of this, what you find is that the West can support jihad as much as it wants. A Muslim, if he does so, is criminalized. And uh, that is the subject that we need to bring out. And I'm really glad that this has happened because when we do it from amongst ourselves, it's very, it's very painful, very difficult to do it. You couldn't talk about this in a mosque. You couldn't talk about this from amongst Islamic scholars. You couldn't talk about this um, in the newspapers or on, on uh, television. So you have to find places where people can kind of understand this. And, and finally to say that the other point I wanted to make is that in the time that we went, perhaps because of, we didn't live at the time of, of social media, when a person went out uh, for jihad, it was really between him and his Lord and maybe a handful of people who might know what's going on. Nobody else knew. And your photographs weren't everywhere. You weren't taking pictures to, to, to send to people and say, look what, where I, I am and put memes together and look, look how tough I look. There was none of that. And in, in Arabic, of course, in Islam, it's called arriya, the showing off. Not to say that people did, there weren't people who didn't do that, but the, the tools weren't available. You simply couldn't do that. If you went off to Afghanistan, you're eating dried bread and drinking tea and a handful of dried uh, um, nuts and dates and crossing dirt-ridden mountains that have been scarred black by bombs and, and the sun. And to be in the midst of that, even water is a commodity. Uh, and today when we talk about people talking about the five-star jihad and living up and big and swimming pools in Syria and so forth and sending images back to say, look how good I look, that's so far removed from any experience of jihad any of that generation had. And, and when I was in Syria in 2012 and 13 and saw some of that, I warned the people about your intentions and about what the consequences of this idea um, uh, of, of 
not making jihad the noble thing it's supposed to be. I mean, that, that was actually going to take me to my next question around like the differences between, um, you know, these different conflicts. Um, and maybe you could, you know, all speak for a couple of minutes on, on this subject. Because, you know, when we think about things like Bosnia, Afghanistan, um, and other conflicts in the past, and the way that, um, you know, people from all over the Muslim Ummah were traveling there in order to, to protect others, who are being harmed, then there is this kind of materialist narrative that I've I've noticed within kind of contemporary discourses around Syria in particular, like, you know, uh, those who uh, are affiliated to ISIS, you see them use this quite a lot. It's about living a good life. Like the, the narrative arc is around the dunya, right? You can have X, Y, or Z here, right? You can live in comfort. You can live that five star, lifestyle, you know, they had a hotel that they were advertising at one point, right? It seems that the pitch is very different. And of course, you know, we can talk about Nia here, about, you know, the kind of intentions that we have, but it just seems that the entirety of the discourse around these different moments uh, are, are so fundamentally different from one another. So can I get a maybe a couple of minutes from each of you on that before we then move into Q&A? So uh, for our audience, please do have your 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 questions ready. We have a Q&A function. Um, please do use that to leave your questions and I will um, hopefully post some of those questions to our panel. So maybe, uh, I don't know, Daryl, do you want to go first? Um, thank you. I don't have that much to add. I think, you know, what but what both Babur and Mazum said was extremely interesting and powerful. Um, I think, you know, what's interesting to me as someone as like an academic who's, you know, situated in all these debates about like jihadism and such is that it's clear to me, I mean, as Mazum said, the issue is that I think um, governments don't want to institutionalize jihad, right? As a, as a, as a part of the faith. Right. They want to institutionalize other parts of the faith. Right. They want to be able to control what imams say in their khutbas. Right. They might uh, they might support, you know, personal law. Right. Like marriage law, things like this. But jihad doesn't get like institutionalized recognition, but also, therefore, it doesn't have regulation. And as Muslim said, it just leaves open the fields that anyone can kind of just say what they're doing is jihad. Right. Um, which then allows you know, folks who want to demonize Muslims to basically take what any individual says and, and essentially attribute it to the entire ummah, right? Now, in the, in the sort of like, you know, expertise, scholarly, academic space, you know, what folks do is they talk about this thing called jihadism, right? Which, you know, to me, just doesn't even make sense, right? Because, you know, you all can be talking about what you think jihad is or isn't, right? Like between, like Bain al-Mu'mineen, right? We can talk about what is, what is or is not jihad, right? But jihadism, what ends up happening with that category is you're like a secular social scientist. You come along and you say, okay, what these people do, we're going to call that jihad and study that as jihadism and come up with some theory of radicalization, blah, blah, blah. What these other folks do, we're not even really, we're just going to ignore that. Right. So even though they purport to be kind of secular and objective, what they're essentially doing is coming into a debate between believers and kind of saying, OK, these jihads count as jihads and these other things don't. Right. Without any like right or basis for doing so. Um, 
Because, I mean, so to me, that's always been super confusing, right? Like when Iran and Iraq fought a war in the 80s, right? They both called it jihad, right? And that's, you know, and the question of who's right or who's not is, is you know, that's something that like Mu'minin can, can debate and, and have lots of discussions about, right? But then for, you know, folks coming from outside of that tradition and saying, you know, we have a theory of a thing called jihadism and now we're going to build an academic field around it and have conferences and write books and whatever is, you know, that to me just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Sorry, Barbara, if you could uh, maybe share some thoughts, please. Um, I think the one thing I want to say is, um, is geopolitics. Um, and what I'll say to any young people that are here listening to this is know the geopolitics of any conflict before you decide to get involved. So I went to Bosnia and for me as an 18 year old, because when you're 18, everything is, the world is black and white, good and bad, good and evil. And non-Muslim Christian Serbs are killing Muslim, Bosnian Muslims because they're Muslim. So I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna help the Muslims and you know, I did my bit and all the people around me and everyone that I saw was uh, Muslims, Mujahideen, and I'm, I've done my bit and I've come back. Now, when you, geopolitics means to expand out and look at the big picture. So why did America get involved in that? Is it suddenly because they wanted to help Muslims and they wanted to help the Mujahideen? And as, you know, as, as Darrell said that, you know, no, that, that, that's not, they had their own, uh, they had their own uh, motivations. And uh, um, so you look at Russia had its interest, France, Germany, they had their interest. Um, you look at different, you have like Middle Eastern countries, they had, everyone had like an interest in what was actually going on. And who was playing it out was people like us on the, on, on the ground. Um, when I first went to prison, then I, one of the early advice that I was given from prisoners that had been there for, you know, for a long time was, do your own time do your own time meaning don't get involved in other people's business because you may inadvertently get caught up into something that you didn't sign up to and then you got to pay the price for and that makes sense to me i mean obviously being hearing that in prison was a bit too late then but uh, um it makes sense to me now so i got involved in a lot of conflicts around the world in, in different in different ways. Some of them physically, some of them, are, you know, are tried to like send support or in, in other ways. And no geopolitics, you know, like Chechnya, what is happening in Chechnya? The Russians were killing the Muslims, the, the, the Muslim, but there's a history behind it. No word is that history. Syria, as it stands, you've got the poor Syrians that we see on, on our social media. We got this uh, strong man, uh, Bashar al-Assad, and he's killing them. And on the face of it, yeah, we got to protect these. And then you see, okay, well, why, why is Iran involved? What's Iran trying to do? What is Turkey trying to do? What is, uh, um, what is Russia's involvement? Why are Russia and Iran, why are they, you know, uh, joined together? And what is their involvement? So these things are quite complicated. And, you know, as, when you're young, you don't see, you don't see these things. Um, but these things are, are very complicated. And it's important for us as Muslims to, you know, don't be someone's, don't be someone's fool. Don't just read a newspaper or, or, or see something on social media. Be, be critical and ask yourself, why is this happening? Who has an interest in this? What is the bigger picture? Who are the different players? And this will help you to not only just understand what's going on, but it will also 
it will stop you doing something hasty and it will also help you to find something to channel your energies into something that is the right way and what is the right thing to do. If you could just um, give us something, uh, share some words, please, and then we'll go into the Q&A from there. But, no. Yeah, I remember when I was held in Bagram, the Americans, they brought in a group of the Afghan prisoners, and these prisoners were all old, very old. They all had white beards, I mean, completely white. And in the Pashtun, they're known as the Spingira, which is the white beards. And I teased the American soldiers and said, look, you've, carried, you've captured the Taliban's octogenarian unit. Um, and, and they didn't take kindly to that, but uh, these people were the most important people. And they are the most important people in Afghan society because from them, they take their knowledge and understanding experiences and crucially mistakes. They learn of those mistakes. I was in Bagram with one brother who said to the Americans, I remember his name was Sharif. And he said, you know, in this place here in Bagram, you know who's buried here? I said, who? He said, my father. He said, my father was buried here alive by the Soviets. And I am here today held by the Americans. And there's something that we are told by our elders about who to fight and who not to fight, who is good and who isn't. The lack of these spingira or gray beards as we want to call them, white beards, in the modern con context, I cannot describe. Um, not only is there not a lack of it, there's a great dis disrespect of it. So from amongst a lot of the, the, the way the youth, youth are taught, is that if they don't agree with you, even if it's a scholar who endorsed you to begin with, but because when he called out your, uh, your mistakes, you said, you're not a scholar, you're just a, uh, a, a, a tool of the West, you know nothing. And this readiness to dismiss anything of, um, uh, of knowledge, of correction, uh, is very, very dangerous. And I have to say it's come about from a situation where uh, the, the war on terrorism in the, in, in, the, in the Western world and crucially in the Muslim world has been so toxic that there is no more space for that. You lock them all up, you put them all away. There is nobody to give that uh, guidance. And as a result of this, uh, that's what's happened to the jihad. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think there's some of the, the maybe not the Evan Coleman's, but the people more intelligent than him know that's going on and it suits a purpose. Um, I've got so many examples of scholars that have been demonized from left to right who actually, if you were to talk to them about their views of targeting people, innocent people and soft targets and people who are non-combatants and so forth, um, how they completely disagree with that. Um, but the fact that those people have no voice at all uh, means that uh, th those who don't know will seek out um, those who, as Barbara was saying, will just go off and go and kill that person that's okay, it's not a problem, that is jihad. If you get killed, you get rewarded hereafter. It is deeply destructive of our, of our community. And if we don't find spaces to have more conversations like this and get more, quote unquote, people who are graybeards, who are able to, who feel safe enough to be able to talk about this subject, then it will never end. And uh, that is something we need to prevent. Zakmacho to you all. Like uh, I really appreciate the uh, the comments uh, so far. We've got lots of questions, uh, as you could well imagine, in a in a discussion like this. I'm going to try and collapse some of these questions together, so that we can get through as many of them as possible. So I guess the first one that's consistently coming up in in, in the chat screen that uh, the questions uh, screen that I'm seeing is one around how we reclaim, uh, how can we practically reclaim the word jihad. 
um, because there is a concern that to do so might land you in hot water uh, with the authorities. Um, you know, one one person, Ibrahim, he's mentioned, uh, Walaikum Salaam to him, that, um, you know, of course, in the UK, it's, um, it's an offence to have a, a terrorism publication or terrorism material. It's a strict liability offence, so just the mere possession of it uh, results in a conviction. How can we have these conversations and how can we interact with literature that can help guide us when we're in such a toxic environment where having real conversations like the one that we're having right now are generally don't take place, right? Like as a generality, you won't find masajid and Muslim institutions having the kind of conversation that, you know, you're very, very brave enough to, to have with one another. So yeah, um, I don't know who wants to go first. Um, any volunteers? Let me, let me, oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Going on, uh, Muslim's the great bit, so I think he should go first. <laughs> well, I know the both of you. I'm definitely the probably. Don't Muslim. You see, I was smart. I knew you were going to play that one, so I died my bit before coming on. So you can't play that one with me. Uh, go ahead, Baba. Go ahead. You're, you're muted. Yeah, I've muted already. So uh, that means okay. you have to go. Go on. Okay, Sula. I mean, um, look, one of the things that's really important for us, um, we're talking about the concept of jihad, right? And, uh, you know, we as Muslims know that, you know, many people will. Uh, misconstrue the concept of jihad and some of obviously we know have taken it to killing innocent people in the streets and bombing uh, uh, non-combatants and so forth and others have said well jihad is just getting up in the morning uh, and looking after their family uh, and the truth is it's it, it's neither actually it's something in between the, the books of fiqh all talk about jihad in a very military sense but that isn't the only sense they talk about it's a jihad for example uh, to fight your internal demons to to struggle with yourself, there's no doubt about that. But if you struggle with your demons and you, and you died as a result of you struggling with your demons, you wouldn't be a shaheed, you wouldn't be a martyr. Um, so it's important we get that clear out so that people don't misconstrue it. At the same time, we know that uh, the greatest jihad, the Prophet said, that speaking a word of truth in front of an oppressive ruler is the greatest jihad. And you can understand why, because the Prophet said, that the say that the master of the martyrs is Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, the, the, the uncle of the Prophet, the most beloved person to him before he died, and the one who spoke a word of truth in front of an oppressive ruler. So he uh, enjoined good upon him, forbade evil upon him, and was killed as a result. Uh, speaking in front of power requires more courage, in my view, though it is not to say at all that being in the field of battle doesn't require courage, it does require courage but it requires more courage because you're taking on a state and you're doing it almost by yourself. And the likelihood of something happening to you, whether it's your uh, uh, livelihood, whether it's you lose your family, whether you lose your, your uh, um, freedom, is all quite possible. And so the only way that's going to happen is a little bit of courage. Because if all those guys are saying, listen, don't do jihad, you can do stuff over here, you can talk, you can fight for your rights and so forth, and then, and then when the crunch comes to it, they're afraid to speak on this issue, then they've done the very thing that they've told the person that you, that you should be doing over here. They've said you can't do it. Uh, and so they, we need leaders and we need courageous leaders and courage breeds courage uh, just as cowardice breeds cowardice. And this is where we will have to step up to the mark. Our leaders will have to. Uh, and we know through history, whether it's Muslim or non-Muslim history, that that is what happens 
when somebody stands up for a principle. Uh, and thus far, um, unfortunately, the enemies of Muslims have the narrative of jihad. We don't own the narrative. We don't own the narrative of our own concept of belief. They do. And, and we need to make that pushback and we need to challenge our imams, challenge our Muslim leaders and to say, please be prepared to say something um, uh, when it's right. If people are defending themselves against oppression, against genocide, against occupation, be proud to call it jihad and don't, and don't let a, a far right nutter control or, or determine what your religion is. Robert, please. Can I, can I add to that, um, uh, um, Arsene, please? Um, I think one thing I want to say is that we live in, like, in the UK, for example, and not just the UK, but generally, it's quite a strange environment that we live in. And, and it's my personal view that this concept, this uh, um, uh, thing called prevent, has actually made the problem of terrorism worse. I've had people literally come to me and I mean, obviously I'm able to speak about it because it all came out in my, my case and, and whatever. I mean, not everyone is. I've had people come to me and say, you know, we're like, you know, it's a breath of fresh air that you're able to speak about the J word. And like, the guy whispers it like that. And I've actually had people like, say that to me and they don't, they don't even want to say it. So prevent has meant that when this young, you know, 18 year old could be an 18 year old me but he's in like 2000 and, uh, and uh, you know 17 he goes to the imam of his masjid and he says to him that uh, you know what shall i do if things are happening in syria and blah 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 and he says don't, shh, don't talk about this just do your prayer and go home so okay he does his prayer then he goes home and he logs on he goes on he goes uh, uh, online and he finds someone there. It could be someone sitting in uh, CIA Langley, uh, Virginia. And uh, yeah, he answers all of his questions. And yeah, what do you want to do? Yeah, what do you do is go or to one of Rukmini, uh, Rukmini's friends, right? <laughs> yeah, one, one of these guys, for example. And he ends up in this, in, in this uh, situation. So what I'll say to, 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 to young people who want to do something, you feel there's no leadership. You don't know anyone you can ask. You can't ask your local imam. You can't ask, you know, but you, your, your heart is bleeding because you are, you, you are seeing things and you want to do something to help your people. You don't know what to do. First of all, I'll tell you what you shouldn't do is don't go online because you do not know who this person is online. You may think that you, these are the like-minded people. You do not know who is behind that, that screen. And there's videos, there's documentary. There's a lot of people that are doing a lot of time in prison because they went on to some guy and he's like, uh, his name's uh, Muhammad bin Adam and he's like telling you all of this stuff. And it's actually someone working for the authorities. And then this guy agrees to do something. Before you know it, you've given your, your, your life away from a good intention. So don't go online. But what you should do is each of us, you know, most people I would say, in our lives we have a person, a wise elder person that we respect. It doesn't have to be a religious person, doesn't even have to be a, a Muslim person. You're I'm talking about someone who's there by himself, who, who's like Muslims talking about these demons, you're fighting with these demons. Go to this person and say to him, this is, and this is someone you know and you trust, and you trust that they look out for your personal welfare. It could be an imam, it could be a youth worker, it could be a, a, a boxing coach, 
it could be a teacher, it could be, it could be, it could be someone. Um, and when I say someone who looks out for your welfare, so this is not someone who's going to report you to prevent, you know, so I say the word teacher with, with a caveat. Okay, so it could be a family friend, or it could be an uncle, it could be some wise person. Go to this person, sit with this person, talk to this person. And when you talk to this person, know that quite often the best advice, I mean, me in my life, the best advice that anyone has ever given me is the advice that I least wanted to hear. So quite often the best advice is the one that you uh, least, uh, least uh, want to hear. So when all doors are shut and you're feeling like, like, please, for God's sake, do not go online. Do not go online. Do not go online because you don't know who is behind that screen. You don't know what advice they're going to give you. Okay, you don't, this person doesn't know you. They don't know your circumstances. Go to someone that you know personally um, and speak to them. And, you know, just like you would go to them about what job shall I take? Shall I buy this car or that car? Shall I move here? Or shall I, or, you know, I've got this problem or that problem. Go to them and, and you'll be better off than, uh, than, than doing it some other ways. Uh, Daryl, do, do you have uh, something that you'd like to add to, to that discussion? Okay, um, so I'm going to target the next question at you directly. Um, so you've opened yourself up for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, Aisha's asking, you know, she's saying, I'm a student of CVE and perception management. Uh, would it be right to assume that although war narratives are seemingly built around religious motivations, the underlying reasons are actually economic, that uh, war is lucr lucrative business for many, that there is a, a, a flourishing weapons industry too? So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really look at these things as either or. Right. I mean, my understanding is that, you know, religion is supposed to, you know, guide us both in, you know, in, in this life and in the hereafter. So I, I've never really understood, you know, the, the debates that folks have about, you know, are these wars really religious or really political or really economic? I think the causes are always going to be, you know, multifaceted and, you know, it doesn't really make sense to, you know, focus on some of these aspects, you know, kind of at the expense of all others. I think any solid analysis, you know, wants to take people's beliefs and perceptions um, seriously as understanding, as part of understanding what they do, but also, yeah, be very mindful of the context, including economic and political that they're sort of part of. Yeah, sorry, that's a great uh, answer. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, I guess I can open this one up again, uh, generally, if whoever wants to take it on. But I mean, how, how do we counter the terrorism narrative, which is exclusively reserved for Muslim perpetrators in our, in our daily lives? Um, you know, there, there is this kind of ubiquity to the way in which we're associated, our faith, our lives are associated to terrorism. Um, how do we counter that? Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing for us to do because the power of the media, the power of the arms of the media are so strong um, and the narrative has been pushed for decades, even before the war on terror. I remember very well, I mean, I mean I've got books on my shelves that are written from that well before that time um, that talked about Islamic terrorism and it wasn't all necessary from, from, from where you'd expect it, but it was actually talking about Iran, the Iranian revolution, uh, that was all terrorism, state-sponsored terrorism, um, Syria, uh, state-sponsored terrorism. The, the, the accusation of terrorism against 
people of Muslim background who are even quite secular, like the PLO and others, um, has stuck for a long while. And the geopolitics of that, you can argue as to where it's come from, and people may have their own theories. But the point is, how do you manage? How, 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 do you, how can you hit back against that? And the answer is that you have to work at it slowly, one step at a time, because we don't own, we don't control a state that is putting out that much information to rebut all of this. And that's a full-time job. I mean, at CAGE, one of the things that we do is try to do that, but it requires, there are, let alone the think tanks that are out there, there are governments that are pushing those narratives out and creating think tanks um, that cement those narratives and give those narratives that extra, uh, extra support. We just, I just want to go to the person on the ground. The question here is, is it all about geopolitics? Is it all about uh, who's making money in this, that, the other? That's very easy for you to say if your home hasn't been attacked or bombed or brutalized or occupied or you rose up in a protest and your family were taken away and you were told that we'll, they'll be back home in, in five minutes and nine years later you see them. That's a privilege they don't have. I've met so many of them. When I, met them, when I went to Syria, uh, the amount of people that I met, ordinary Syrians, who told me they were simply part of a protest, a shot, you know, they just wanted change. They had been sick of living under this kind of yoke of oppression for so long. And that's why they say, that's why they say they rose up. They weren't fighters. They didn't know how to fight. They were forced to fight. Um, so when we start saying it's all about this and this country is doing this and this country is doing that and you're getting played in between, that's true, as for, especially for, for somebody who goes across and doesn't know. But one of the arguments I've always given is that Britain was about to be occupied by the Nazis in uh, World War II. The, the Nazis had taken Jersey and Guernsey. You know, some of us might go there for holidays. They were under Nazi control and they were about to end Britain. Well, what was Britain doing? Uh, the, you know, Tony Benn talks about this, but the Home Guard were actually trained in tactics that would today be regarded as terrorists. In fact, the, the Nazis called the French resistance terrorists and executed them. So according to the Nazis, these guys, because they're fighting against them, they're, they're terrorists. Um, had the Nazis occupied Britain, the British fighting against them would have been terrorists. And the concept is the same. If somebody's occupied your land and you fight back against them and your, your occupier is going to call you terrorists just as the Nazis did. But that doesn't make them right. And so we've got to remind people about this, is that in the very basest of places, if we're talking about occupation or dominance by these governments that are trying to uh, uh, oppress a civilian population, that cannot be terrorism. Even if you were to remove Islam from it, if you were to remove Islam and the whole concept of jihad, fighting for your rights would still be an obligation. Can I add to that, Asim? Um, in addition, I mean, Muslim said some very good points. It is very difficult. Um, one of the things, and this is my personal view, is, is to learn to live with it and stop stressing over it. And one of the ways is, and I learned this from Clive Stafford Smith, who was uh, one of the, um, um, the, the, the attorneys at uh, Guantanamo. And he said, people don't like being laughed at. And I remember, was it a few years back where the, the Sun newspaper, they printed this, uh, the famous headline that one in five Muslims support ISIS. And so some, smart Muslims, then they got this uh, hashtag um, called one in five and they, um, they started basically, that started trending on Twitter 
and they're like uh, making statements like you know one in five Muslims have forcibly converted their cats to Islam and make them read the Quran and then you got a picture of a cat with a hijab on it or whatever I mean the reality is is how long are we going to get upset for where every time something happens and they call Muslims terrorists they we don't like it but how long are we going to we going to put up with this it is very very difficult it is very difficult to to you know to to change this narrative especially when you're up against you're up against powerful politicians in the, the media and you're, you're you know if someone wants to think that that someone wants to call us terrorists i mean fine that doesn't that doesn't it doesn't uh, change reality in my case i i lived for for 11 years um being uh, called a terrorist i actually spent time in prison for it only for a judge at the end of it the one who matters to say no this guy this guy wasn't a terrorist so it is very hard but we don't have to think of it as a battle do what is the right thing you know uh, do the right thing study your religion and don't worry about what things people are going to say about you and these labels that they're going to say about us um you know it, it takes a lot of energy to to be upset over this and, and to think over this um it's very hard so stop stressing over it and do focus on something that you, you can do hey interesting points barbara we'll talk about some of those inshallah in more detail um daryl um is a really interesting question for you um I think uh, the universal enemy shows us that solidarity is a capacious mode of politics that is able to register difference without obliterating it and bring actors together across diverse geographies. But to what extent is solidarity inc increasingly a secular category that mirrors the logic of multiculturalism? Can we really describe a sense of belonging with the word ummah as an iteration of solidarity, a concept that's firmly rooted in the left? Um, yeah, so um, that's a great question. Playing yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's a really that's a really great question, um, and it sounds like it's someone. It sounds like it's from someone who has actually read the book, which is reassuring because I didn't know that such people existed. <laughs> um, so I guess what I would say is, um, you know, the the term solidarity certainly has its kind of. Um, uh, roots in histories of the left, not exclusively so, but primarily so. But I don't think that it's a word that the left necessarily owns or even purports to own. Um, and, you know, it was a word that was used by quite a few of the people I spoke to in, you know, doing the research for this book, right? People who were, you know, self-consciously um, Islamic in their orientation, right? Um, so for a lot of them, the term in Arabic is, uh, is Tlalman. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I don't think there's necessarily a contradiction. I agree that solidarity can in some forms just look like liberal multiculturalism, um, with all of its, you know, ups and downs. Um, but I also, uh, hope that the book tries to provide an example of how it can look like something slightly different. Right. So I think, you know, one of the themes that's been echoed in a lot of the points that, that Muazzam and Babur have made is this idea that, you know, part of what's appealing about some of these forms of action is that they bring together people from so many different backgrounds, right? And the thing about that that's appealing seems to resonate, you know, whether we're talking about kind of the United Nations or jihad or something. So it's not something that I think 
um, we should allow liberalism to kind of have the monopoly on, right? There is something, I mean, you know, of course the Quran is full of like references, right? To like, you know, like um, appreciating and exclaiming um, sort of upon the differences that exist kind of within humanity, right? And, and you know, using that difference as itself a source of, of inspiration and, and of strength. So in that particular sense, I think solidarity is a term that, you know, is hopefully useful to think with, you know, across all of these different contexts. And that's part of what the book is trying to do, right? To show that these are themes that can be talked about, you know, both in a kind of, you know, Islamic context and also outside of it, right? Which also kind of connects to the point that Muslim was making about like, you know, this whole garbage about people being labeled terrorists when they're fighting for their rights, right? I mean, I think this is something that, you know, can be appreciated in, in many different contexts and situations. Thank you, uh, and that's a great answer. Um, now, one of uh, our friends, Ghulam, he's, he's asking a question. He, he recently visited Bosnia with his wife, um, uh, and you know, they were talking to a lot of the, uh, the communities that they were encountering there. And what, one of the things that they were hearing quite consistently is that, um, that Muslims had kind of come into a position of weakness again as a political force. And they felt that uh, some of what they experienced in the past could um, potentially, you know, come back to haunt them uh, again. And they're wondering if there was any kind of contemporary, the research into the, you know, the contemporary divisions that there are in Bosnia and, you know, whether or not, you know, maybe there's some, there's some truth to, um, you know, some of those same divisions arising again in the same way. Uh, one of the things uh, um, that's really important, you know, when Brenton Tarrant, that, that murderer, went into the Masajid in, in, uh, uh, in New Zealand and killed all those Muslims, he had emblazoned upon his rifles uh, battles of Kosovo, battles of, of uh, uh, conflicts uh, that took place in, in uh, Bosnia, and that he was part of the Avengers for that. He was one of the Avengers for that. He visited that region and uh, he, he, he supported the killing of the Muslims there. And this was because we've got to understand now, particularly the rise of extreme nationalism. It was extreme nationalism that allowed the Serbs in the name of that to butcher the Muslims. And is that kind of extremist nationalism that is on, that is back uh, times 10. Now you can see this wherever you want to, whether it's make America great again, whether it's um, uh, RSS Hindu nationalists in India or, or so forth, or whether it's trying to force Chinese values onto Muslims in, um, in East Turkestan, the concept's the same. And so I've spoken to people in Bosnia who are very fearful that it may return again, that, uh, you know, there are songs uh, and symbols done, for example, at, at football matches uh, that are of the, uh, uh, the various Serbian forces that uh, um, uh, killed the Muslims. Brenton Tarrant actually was, if, you, if you're not, uh, if many people don't know, was actually listening to while he was doing the shootings, he was listening to Serbian nationalist songs that celebrated Radovan Karadzic. So he was, while he was listening to those songs, he was shooting those Muslim kids, those brown Muslim kids, uh, and he was reveling in the death of white Muslim kids. So he didn't care about their color. This wasn't a racist as we know it. He, he, to him, if you're a Muslim, you are the other. It doesn't matter what color you are. And it's that type of nationalism that's back on the rise um, in the name, and it's been unleashed as a result of the war on terrorism. It's allowed the far right to rise and to show its head in ways that it could never have before. And again, people need to be held accountable for that. Um, and, and I believe every Bosnian I've spoken to 
believes that it's a ticking time bomb, that it could return at any point because um, those figures that, have, that are war criminals that have been targeted here from the West in terms of what they did on the genocide on one section within uh, Serbian society, indeed Bosnian Serbian society, they're regarded still as heroes. Can I add to that, Asim? Um, if you see, if you look at the experiences of what happened after the Second World War, um, Germany did some soul searching. Uh, they arrested the people, the perpetrators or the leaders of the Nazis were put on trial. Uh, compensation was paid to, to the Jews. Even now, until now, compensation is being paid and houses are being given to them. And a lot of these things, there was all this concept of, you know, never again, never forget, uh, um, never again. Um, but if you see in Bosnia, and I had the, the privilege to, to visit Bosnia last year, which was for the first time in uh, maybe over 20 years or so. Um, and I strongly recommend that, um, that you should go and visit there, go and visit Srebrenica. Um, in one trip, we visited um, uh, a, um, a concentration camp in Germany. And uh, in the same trip, we visited uh, Srebrenica as well. So it, there is a lot of truth to that. And one of the differences is in Bosnia at the moment is those people there is not just the case of they deny the genocide, but the perpetrators of the genocide, they actually celebrate it. They actually celebrate it every year, even recently. You've seen Srebrenica, you have these like songs, uh, patriotic, uh, Chetnik, uh, um, um, Serb nationalist war songs that, that are being sung. Those people that spent time in prison um, uh, who were convicted of war crimes and killed hundreds of Muslims, they went back to heroes welcome. Uh, wherever they, they, they came from. Um, so there is a lot of tension there. Um, people that did these, and some of the Bosnians, they say some of that is our fault because we should have done more to make sure that the perpetrators were put on, on trial. So you have some of the leaders that were arrested and tried for war crimes, but the ordinary foot soldiers, I mean, I drove through Serb areas and Serb villages uh, last year, and the thought came to me that anyone who's in their 40s you know, in a place like close to Srebrenica, for example, in a place called the Bratunac. Um, this guy sitting on a cafe, looking at us as we drove by, drinking tea. He could have uh, he could have killed like 200 people because he was of that age where he would have been like a, a military-aged man at that time. Um, things, so something could happen again, but whether the, whether the, 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 the response of the Bosnians will be the same as it was, uh, before, um, I don't think that's that. I don't think that will happen. I mean, the Serb, Bosnian Serbs economically, their their uh, republic is the weakest out of the three in Bosnia. They have a lot of internal problems. I mean, economically, they they, they couldn't even uh, they couldn't even do it. So, um, but yeah, there is still a lot of tension there. Daryl, do you want to add anything? Um, the only thing that I would add quickly is that. Um, I mean, I, I agree with everything that was said. Um, all of the sort of nasty nationalist politics of the war was essentially rewarded and institutionalized by the so-called peace agreement that the United States introduced into the country. Um, the only thing that I would add is that um, the level of corruption and institutional dysfunction in the country, um, unfortunately, is so high that, I mean, in addition to worrying about 
what could happen in terms of like armed warfare breaking out, we should actually be worried about what is happening and has been happening, which is that the country is falling apart. Young people are leaving in droves of all identity groups. You know, pe young people in Bosnia, whether Serbs, Croats or Bosniaks don't see any future in the country for the most part. Um, and that is deeply, deeply corrosive, you know, even without having a war. Thank you. Um, so we have pretty much been going for two hours now. And uh, I know Daryl has to go um, for another event fairly soon. So unfortunately, I'm not going to be taking any more questions. Um, there were about 11 that was still um, in, the, in the queue. But what I will do is I will ask uh, each of our speakers to please um, maybe just provide a couple of minutes on um, kind of their final thoughts before we draw the uh, event to a close. So I'm very sorry for all of you who, who thought to, to ask um, you know, very important questions, but I'm afraid uh, we just don't have the time today. Uh, can I just ask anybody who's watching that please open up the subject in your circles, wherever you can. And I'm sure myself, Barbara, or anybody else, it's very difficult to get people to talk about this subject. It's very, very hard. Um, yet, if the, the more we open it, the more people will become open to it. So let's start it. Let's make this a point at which we start the concept, the, the, the conversation on this subject. It's really important that we open it up. There's no point in it staying in amongst these 70 or 80 people here this evening then we would have not gained anything further than, than our experiences. Open it up as much as possible. And we are prepared to talk. To, and then I'm sure that will uh, bring other people in. The other thing is that, uh, Daryl, you mentioned the concept of solidarity at the Dharma. It's really important. And that's a, a concept that um, most people will, will agree with. I remember it was a concept that came out, as, as far as I remember, um, uh, from the 70s and the 80s with solidarity with Lefwanza, who was the... Uh, uh, um, became the leader of, of Poland. But for Muslims, the concept is this. It's Tawheed, Tawheed the Safuf, uh, the oneness of, of, uh, of our ranks. And no better verse could, could describe it than when Allah Subhanahu wa says it twice in the Quran with two different endings. And he connects it, what he connects it with is very important. So Allah Subhanahu wa says that this is nation of yours, is one nation, so I am your Lord, so fear me. Meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala connects this tawheed, this ummah, with taqwa. The connection is with taqwa. That's the first one. He says again, So this time he says this very same thing, but he ends it with ibadah, that it connects it to worship. So the tawheed of the sufuf, or the, the oneness of, the, of, of the, the lines and the ranks of Muslims, is connected to two most primary important Muslim duties. And one is uh, worship, and the other is taqwa. And I pray that that, that is what, what the heart and soul of people who wanted to go out in the path of Allah, I believe that was the heart and soul behind it. Um, uh, Daryl, Barber, who wants to go next? Daryl, why don't you go and then we'll, let, we'll finish off. I think Daryl should go. Even, well, I, I even though we can't see his grey beard. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I can't even go here. So, <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, I register, I, man. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I don't have anything to add. I mean, I'm, I'm really just honored to have been part of this conversation. It was fascinating. I learned so much from listening to everyone else. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful for, you know, the, the questions and the really engaging conversation. And, you know, I agree, especially with Muslim, there need to be more 
um, open and more mature conversations around this topic um, in all contexts. And um, I hope um, that, yeah, this can, this can contribute to that. So thank you. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Daryl. And I think now I want to read the book because I hadn't read it before, but now I do, especially because that, that, uh, that, that footnote on Evan Coleman. <laughs> Robert, please. Yes. Um, so final thoughts. I think I was reading some of the, um, the things that people were writing in the chats and, and, uh, you know, the Serbs were this and then the, the, the US did this. And, and I think ultimately, um, we, as you know, the Muslim Ummah, we need to take ownership for the situation that we are in. Um, we have allowed things to get this bad, and um, it's it's sometimes the easiest thing to do is to point the finger at what they're doing. I mean, if you walk down the street and a dog barks at you, you're not going to oh my god, look at that dog! Look how how dare he barked at me? You know, the dog. You know, how could he do that? He's a dog. He barked. That's what he's meant to do. You know, so, you know, you expect, you see what the Israelis are doing in, in, in Palestine. I mean, do you expect anything better from them? That's not surprising. And the situation that the Muslims are in, we ourselves have put ourselves into this situation, not, not recently, but through a collective decline and weakness over a number of uh, generations, over centuries. And we ourselves can get ourselves uh, out of this. Don't lose hope. Don't sometimes, you know, sometimes it's hard when you're seeing things and you're only seeing bad news and you're only seeing, hearing uh, negative news. There's a lot of good in the Muslim community. There's a lot of good people that are doing a lot of good things on a personal level, on a community level, on, on a national and international level. And see that, otherwise you won't have a balanced view of, uh, of, uh, of what's happening. The Muslim Ummah has been through a number of challenges in its history that are a million times worse than what we're going through today. And somehow we were able to, to, you know, to, 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 to get through that. So don't lose hope. Um, things, uh, I mean, you know, you have myself and Muslim after what we went through, we're just sitting here in front of a screen and, and talking to you. That in itself is proof that situations change, world changes, uh, politics change, countries change, you know, and, and, and just like Allah says in the Quran, in the alternation of the night and the day, are signs for those people of understanding. So no matter how dark the night comes, there's always a dawn at the end of it. And then, then there's a day, and then after the day, the day ends, then there'll be a night after that. Then after the night, there'll be another uh, day. But that's all I just wanted to end with. Um, really to, to all three of you, um, you know, Mazam and, and, and Babar, you know, like, you know, very much like older brothers to me. Uh, while Daryl may be younger than me, he's my senior in, in academics, you know, mashallah, you know, somebody I very much look up to in many, many ways. Actually, I think I'm older than you, but never mind. Really? <laughs> well, you said you were 12 in 95, right? So yeah, I'm, I've got a few years on you. It's, it's, really? it's the gray beard. That's what it is. <laughs> this is that's really depressing, I've got to say. <laughs> Buy his book, everybody, The Universal Enemy. Mashallah, it's a superb, superb piece of scholarship. Um, we were waiting for it for many years. Um, you know, Daryl was writing it for a very long time, um, editing it. Um, because of the seriousness of his scholarship, um, because of what it contributes uh, for us all. So it's not just about Bosnia, but it's about, you know, the kind of meanings that we take from the study. And that's why, you know, although this event, you know, was centered around Bosnia, I think what, what we took from it and what we had hoped from it as Cage is that we'd have a much wider conversation 
uh, about what that moment meant within a much larger kind of internationalist movement of Muslims and how they relate to one another. And in these kind of very, very trying times, there is um, something very hopeful to take from that, that, you know, kids as young as 18 year old could say to themselves, there are people suffering elsewhere and I need to support them and I need to protect them. But coupled with that is the, the white bearded wisdom, even though Barbara dies his beard, which is, you know, like, I think it's important um, as, as our uh, elder brothers have said, to, to think very, very carefully about the circumstances um, that these conflicts are taking place in and to get tutelage and, guide, and guidance from uh, those who have experience. So Jazakumullah khair to, to everybody for taking part in this really fascinating discussion. There are very few spaces like this that exist to have these types of conversations. So I hope you all benefited as much as I did. Jazakumullah khair. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.